Welcome to the Southridge Church Podcast. This week's awesome message will start in a few seconds. But first, we want you to stay connected with us. You can find us on sanjose.cc or subscribe to the podcast. Amen. Welcome. So glad that you're here. Thank you for standing. You may be seated. This is your first time at Southridge. We are excited to see each and every one of you here. If this is your first time at Southridge, we'd love for you at any point in our service to take out our connection card and to fill it out. And at the end of our service, when we receive our offering, to take that connect card and to drop it in our offering basket so we have a record of your attendance because we are thrilled that you are here. And if I haven't said so, I want to welcome you. My name is Micaiah Ermland, pastor here at church at Southridge Church. We're glad that you are here. We're going to go to the book of 1 Kings, chapter number 19. Take your Bible if you would. 1 Kings chapter number 19. I had announced that I was going to kick off a series out of the book of Psalms, and we were going to do summer in the Psalms. And I'm excited about still doing that series, but I'm going to push it out just a bit because all week, God has been messing me up in a good way about 1 Kings chapter number 17. 1 Kings chapter number oh, 17, 19, 19. And uh, as I begin to think about the Psalms, because I think we all have our favorite Psalm. Let me see your hands. How many of you have a favorite go-to Psalm? Yeah, there we go. We all have got one, right? Uh, some of you, it may be the uh, 23rd Psalm, maybe Psalm 91. It may be Psalms 1. We all have that go-to just when we're going through something, or we're struggling with something. That's our go-to. We pull out that word and it just refreshes and restores and it's just great. And uh, it's awesome that we have the Psalms. But as I was just thinking and praying, God just wasn't giving me peace. But he was teaching me some things out of 1 Kings 19. And so I want to share with you what God has been sharing with me. So if you would, let's read several verses together. And I know it's warm in here, but it's good. I like it. All right, verse number one. The Bible says, When Ahab got home, he told Jezebel everything Elijah had done. Don't you hate a tattletale? I mean, I hate a tattletale. I grew up with six other siblings, two parents and two dogs, and probably some other things creepy crawling around. My siblings always had other stuff. And, uh, you know, you, you'd, you, you'd be doing something not supposed to be doing, and then they rat you out. And I thought I had left that all behind. Well, I have ice cream in my freezer. My kids aren't always allowed to have ice cream, and they're not always allowed to have the screen time. Uh, this week... I broke two rules. I gave them ice cream and a screen. And as soon as their mom walked home, Jane, my wife, immediately they said, dad made us do it. I was like, are you kidding me right now? You bunch of tattletales, you know? It's like you throwing your dad under the bus just like that. Here's Ahab. He, who is he tattled to? He's actually the king of Israel. And who is he tattled to? Jezebel, his wife. Oh, did you see what Elijah did? The verse continues, including the way he had killed all the prophets of Baal. So Jezebel sent this message to Elijah. May the gods strike me and even kill me if by this time tomorrow I have not killed you just as you killed them. Elijah was afraid and fled for his life. He went to Beersheba, a town in Judah, and he left his servant there. Then he went on alone into the wilderness, traveling all day. He sat down under a solitary broom tree and he prayed that he might die. And this is what he said, I have had enough, Lord. Oh my goodness, is that not sum up your week and mine? I've had enough, Lord. 
I mean, if you go to the gas station, aren't you just like, I've had enough, Lord. Like, have mercy. You know, maybe it was, it was hot for you this week, and it was hot for us, and we're cheap, so we don't turn on the air in our house. And you're like, I've had enough. Maybe, Mom, you've had enough of your kids. Maybe, husband, you had enough of your wife. No, don't say that. No, 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 no. Don't do it. Never, never. That's never good. Maybe you said, I've had enough of all the drama that's going on in the world. I've just had enough. Some of us just get to the point where we just, I've had enough, Lord. That's where Elijah's at. He said, I have enough. And then this gets worse. He said, take my life, for I'm no better than the ancestors who have already died. It's hard when you get to that point. There's a lot of people today that have gotten to that point. They've had enough, and they just said, you know what? I'm just going to take my life. Scripture continues, then he lay down and he slept under the broom tree. But as he was sleeping, an angel touched him and told him, get up and eat. He looked around and there beside his head was some bread baked on a hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. Then the angel of the Lord came again and touched him and said, get up and eat some more. Or the journey ahead will be too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank and the food... And the food gave him enough strength to travel 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. There he came to a cave where he spent the night. But the Lord said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah replied, I have zealously served the Lord God Almighty. But the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you, torn down your altars and killed every one of your prophets. I am the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. Go out and stand before me in the mountain, the Lord told him. And as Elijah stood there, the Lord passed by, and a mighty windstorm hit the mountain. It was such a terrible blast that the rocks were torn loose, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was a sound of a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in a cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And the voice said, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied again, I have zealously served the Lord God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken the covenant with you, torn down your altars, and killed every one of your prophets. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. And the Lord told him, go back the same way you came and travel the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive there, anoint Haziel to be king of Aram. Then anoint Jehu, grandson of Nimshi, to be king of Israel, and Elisha, son of Shaphat, from the town of Abel-Maholah, to replace you as my prophet. What's so amazing about this passage of scripture is because we are in chapter 19. But think about where the journey begins for the great prophet Elijah. I mean, this is Elijah we're talking about. This is a great prophet we're talking about. And in chapter number 17, he shows up on the scene. And he speaks to King Ahab and he says, it's not going to rain for three and a half years, but by my word. And then God takes that prophet and brings him to the brook Cherith. And it's at the brook Cherith that the ravens provide for this mighty man of God. And over time, the brook begins to dry up. And then this mighty man of God goes to Zarephath where he meets a widow. And it's there that the widow of Zarephath is there. And he sees her picking up sticks. And here's the prophet, the man of God, seeing the woman. And he asks the woman, hey, go and get me a drink. And the woman says, sure. And she begins to go get a drink. And then as an afterthought, Elijah the prophet says, oh, and by the way, uh, make me a cake while you're at it. The woman says, as your God lives, not my God, but your God, I have nothing but a small bit of flour and a little bit of oil. I'm going to bake a little cake. My son and I are going to eat it 
and die. And you think that would break Elijah's heart. But what does he say? Okay, but first go make me a cake first. Insensitive person. I mean, some of you wives are getting upset. You want to hit your husband. I mean, it's just like something inside of you. Just like, oh, that prophet. So mean. How insensitive. But here's the miracle. The Bible says that she obeys, and then that little cruise of oil, little bottle of oil, it never ran out. That little jar of flour, it never ran out throughout the entire famine. That's three and a half years. God provided a miraculous miracle. Man, this mighty prophet then goes on, and that widow's son dies. And then Elijah raises the son up from the dead. And then he comes to this uh, Mount Carmel where he says to Ahab and to all of Israel, he says, if God be God, then follow him. But if Baal be God, then follow him. Choose this day. And the Bible says that Israelite, the nation of Israel answered not a word. And so they had a little contest and there were 450 prophets of Baal. And then there was just Elijah, one to 450, not very good odds. Just like the warriors with the Celtics. We need to pray for the warriors. Some of you are like, no, pray for the Celtics. I got money on the Celtics. Oh, you shouldn't gamble. Unless you're going to tithe off of it, then gamble all you want. (laughs) And so here he is. There's a showdown. There's a contest. And all of a sudden, these prophets bail. They begin to call down and beg out to their false god. And nothing. Elijah even mocks them and says, maybe your god is going to the bathroom. He literally says it in the text. Maybe your god's uh, going to relieve himself. Can't hear you. Scream louder. Nothing. Then Elijah steps up, and the Bible says this. He repairs the altar of the Lord. And then they put the cow on top of the altar. And then he says, go get some water and soak the altar. Let's make this hard. They soak it. And then they dug a trench, so there's water in a trench. And he says, do it a second time. And then Elijah prays a 37-word prayer, and fire falls from heaven. And all of a sudden, the people cry out, the Lord, he is the God. The Lord, he is the God. And then Elijah says, go and slay the prophets of Baal. They slay the prophets of Baal. And then Ahab gets in his chariot, begins to run back to Jezreel. And that's when Elijah begins to pray for rain. And he puts, the scripture says in chapter number 18, he puts his head between his knees, and he's kneeling, and he's praying. And he tells his servant, go check if there's any clouds And the servant says, no. And he says, go again and again and again. Finally, he says, I see a small little cloud about the size of man's hand. And then Elijah, the mighty prophet, says, I hear the abundance of rain. Let's get up and let's run. What a mighty miracle. You would think with all those miracles, that would be enough proof to convince wicked Ahab and wicked Jezebel not to mess with Elijah. I mean, wouldn't you and I kind of be convinced? That, hey, this guy has a good connection with God. I wouldn't want to mess with him. But that's not what they do. And it just reminds me that people reject God despite the evidence, not because of the evidence. Maybe you have an atheist friend, or maybe you have some coworkers that deny Christianity, deny the faith, or maybe you have a loved one, they deny it. Understand they don't do so because of the lack of evidence, but because of the sheer amount of evidence. People are just willfully ignorant of it. But then you get to the point where all the stress and all the sadness just culminate. And here, Elijah, he gets one critical letter. One little piece of hate mail. That was enough. I mean, here's a man that faced down 450 false prophets, doesn't even flinch. He's standing up there mocking them. But then this woman, this Jezebel, that queen, writes a letter. And he says, it's enough, I can die now. You see, Satan has an agenda for you and for me. 
and it's just like what Jezebel had for Elijah. You see, Jezebel said, hey, by this time tomorrow, you're a dead man. I'm going to kill you. Satan wants to do the same thing. He wants to destroy you. That's his agenda. You say, why would Satan want to kill me? Why would Jezebel want to kill Elijah? For the same reason that Satan's after you. Because Satan only threatens those who are a threat to him. Let me say it again. Satan only threatens those who are a threat to him. So consider it a compliment if Satan and the enemy are coming after you because they see that you are a threat to the kingdom of darkness. They see that that bright light that you're shining in your home, you're shining in your neighborhood, you're shining at your job, you're shining in your community. He says, that's not what I need. I want the world polluted with darkness. I want them focused on all manner of evil and wickedness. And yet here you come with the joy of the Lord, the peace of God in your heart. And all of a sudden, man, things begin to change because you are there. You see, the enemy wants to destroy you. And that's what he wants to do for us. He wants to take us out. You say, how do we know that? The Bible says in John 10, 10, the thief's purpose is to steal, kill, and destroy. The Bible says in 1 Peter 5, that the devil's a roaring lion looking for whom he may devour. So there's a goal that the enemy has. And he's coming after you. And so what are we going to do about it this morning? I want you to notice a couple things from this passage. First of all, would you notice that if the enemy can't destroy you, he'll distract you. What's interesting in this passage, you see that here, Elijah just won a great victory. There's all these people that they were kind of on the fence about which side they're going to pick. But then when Elijah calls down fire from heaven, they say, the Lord, he is the God. The Lord, he is the God. These are all new converts. These are new disciples. But what does Elijah do? He runs. Wait a minute. Didn't he have a responsibility to disciple and to minister and to raise up and to train and invest in these new converts? He just ditches them. He's afraid. You see, because he got in his feelings, didn't he? You see, you and I, we can get in our feelings and we can forget about our faith. Isn't it interesting how our feelings can block our faith or we'll make faith-filled decisions only until our feelings contradict our faith? We follow our feelings and here he is. Here's this great prophet and he is distracted and so he is not discipling and, de and de developing these young Christians. He's just gone. And that's what happens to us. When you just abandon your ministry, abandon your family, abandon your children because you're in your feelings, you're doing the devil's work for him because he wants us to be distracted, so distracted we're not busy doing the work of the Lord. You see, here is Elijah. He's running from God, not working for God. You say, how long did he run from God? 40 days and 40 nights. He's gone. That's six weeks of time. That's a long time. So if the devil can't destroy you, he will distract you. If the devil can't distract you, he will delay you. Notice it said it took him 40 days to get to Mount Sinai. 40 days. Do you think that's coincidence? From where he was in Jezreel to get to Mount Sinai is just a few days. Why did it take 40 days? Similar reason why it took the children of Israel 40 years to get from Egypt to the promised land. It's a three-day journey. But their rebellion and their sin and their grumbling and their complaining turned that three-hour tour into, just kidding, four-hour tour. That's the old show, four-hour tour. It can delay it, and that's exactly what Satan wants to do. He's saying, hey, if I can't destroy you, if I can't distract you, then I'm going to delay you from doing what God wants you to do. I'll just push it off a while. I'll just slow you 
down. So he wanted to delay Elijah. But here's the crucial part. This is where we're going to park all of our time. If the enemy can't delay you, then he will discourage you. Look at verse number three. Elijah was afraid and fled for his life. He went down to Beersheba, a town in Judah, and he left his servant there. And then we see he says in verse number four, I have had enough, Lord. I can die. How sad is that? How sad it is that the discouragement got to him. Ships don't sink because of the water around them, but when the water gets inside them. Many Christians aren't destroyed because of the world around them, but when the world gets inside of them, mainly discouragement. I'm not actually concerned that many of you are going to wreck your life this week by going robbing a bank or going and committing some heinous act in Las Vegas. I'm more worried that you're going to destroy your life through discouragement. Because when you're discouraged, that's when we make our poorest decisions. I read a book recently that said to guard against some things, and they use an acronym called HALT. Guard, because we make bad decisions when we're hungry, when we're angry, when we're lonely, and when we're tired. HALT. We make bad decisions when we're hungry. Ever gone to the grocery store when you're hungry, and you just buy everything? And you get back, and you're like, man, I shouldn't have bought that, I shouldn't have bought that, but I was hangry when I went there. Or ever just overreacted to a situation simply because you were angry? Or ever just made a poor decision because you were lonely? You ever just try to hit up that old boyfriend and girlfriend simply because you're lonely? You're like, what am I doing? I hate that person. Why am I reaching out? Because you're lonely. Why are you going back to that old friend, that old relationship? You're lonely. Why are you doing those, making poor decisions because you're tired? Here, Elijah, he's doing some dumb things. This great man of God is doing some dumb things because he is hungry. We see it in the text. He's angry. He's running for his life. He's lonely. He's by himself. And then he's tired. He's trying to sleep. You see, discouragement had sunk in. He had allowed discouragement to get into him. But here's what's crazy. Notice you would look at when God comes to him. He goes to the Mount Sinai, and in verse number 9, the Bible says, Then he came to a cave where he spent the night. But the Lord said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah replied, I have zealously served the Lord God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you, torn down your altars, and killed every one of your prophets. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. Hold on now. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You see verse number 9? Or excuse me, verse number 10. There's a word there. I don't know if you caught it. I caught it. It it says, and they are trying to kill me too. Uh Hold on. I was homeschooled, not the right kind of homeschool, kind of a bad homeschool. So my English grammar ain't too good. And so, but what I did get is they is plural. Am I right? Help me out. Is, Is they plural? It is. Okay, thank you. I was worried for a second. But hold on. The Bible says that only Jezebel said she wanted to kill him. Why is he saying they when it's only a she? Because discouragement will distort your reality. When you are discouraged, everything seems worse than it really is. The sky is falling. The relationship's terrible. The kids are horrible. I'm a failure. I should just end it now because discouragement distorts your reality. You're not even seeing reality correctly anymore when you're discouraged. And that's the thing you and I are going to face the most is that battle of discouragement. People will sometimes come to me in the church and they'll say something like, hey, there's some people, they're kind of upset about something and I think you should deal with it. 
Oh, people are upset? Oh, yeah, 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 people are upset. Oh, really? They're upset? Yeah, yeah, some people, you should deal with it. Oh, okay. And I learned a long time ago to say, who are the people? Oh, you know the people. What people? I want to know. Oh, just some of the peoples. I'm like, are they good peoples or are they bad peoples? Like, who are the peoples? Can you give me names? Oh, you know. Uh, you know, and you're like, come on, give me some details because you said people. And then they come down to it's really just them. It's just them who's upset. It's just them who's bothered. But they want to group some people into it. And here's what I've learned. Sometimes the group that is loudest is not always the largest. And sometimes we can get thinking in our mind that there is more against us than there is for us. But we don't remember scripture. Because in Romans 8, it says, how should we, God, how, we, nothing can separate us from the love of God. There's nothing. God, God has so much more for you than against you. And yet we get trapped into this thinking that says, poor me, poor mine, woe is me. Uh, nobody loves me. Everybody hates me. Where are my worms? I'm just going to eat some worms now. We're just distraught. We're, 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 we're discouraged. And in that moment, we've got to remember, wait a minute. That's discouragement. I've, I've let that in. I, I think it's interesting that he said it's just me. Well, you did that. That's your fault. It's just you. I think sometimes we get lonely and we're like, nobody this church likes me. Just me. Really? Because in this passage, if you go to verse number five, he does something. In verse number five, or excuse me, let me back up. In verse number three, it says that he goes to Beersheba. This is Elijah. Goes to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he leaves his servant there. Wait a minute. You left your buddy there, and now you're complaining that you're alone? I find that sometimes we're discouraged. We can push away those people closest to us. We can push them away. In marriage, you can do this. You'll be angry at the boss, but sometimes you'll take it out on the spouse and push them away. You'll be angry with the kids. You can push a loved one away. We do this sometimes. And we know we shouldn't, but sometimes we just take it out on the people closest to us. And here Elijah is saying, I'm alone. Nobody loves me. Nobody cares about me. Nobody thinks about me. But really, you're the one pushing people out of your life. Elijah did this. Elijah's by himself, and it's kind of his fault. You see, in this passage, I noticed, though, that even though Elijah had made some of these decisions, look at how good God is. You say, what do you mean God is good in this passage? And I like in verse number five, it says, and as he slept, he slept under this broom tree, and then an angel of the Lord touched him, and it woke him, and it said, arise and repent, you idiot. Is that what it says? No. It says, get up and get your head back in the game. Is that what it says? Get up and get back to Southridge, you loser not what it says i love this verse this is a great verse get up and eat come on that's good like wouldn't you just love it if your wife came in or your husband came in the next morning and says rise and shine get up and eat breakfast in bed baby i'm telling you that your marriage would change real quick right like fresh eggs fresh bacon you know pancakes waffles little fruit and then took the whipped cream made a smiley face out of it you know you like the smiley face for all grown-up kids you man that would make everything different how good is God that instead of rebuking him, even though he's discouraged, even though a lot of this is his doing, he's living in fear. God comes to him and encourages him. And how does God encourage him? He says, you need to sleep and then you need to eat. But then he doesn't stop there. God gives him double for his trouble. You say, why? The verse continues. He tells him to go back to sleep. 
And then he wakes him up again in verse number five. And then he says he lay down and slept under the broom tree. But as he was sleeping, an angel touched him, get up and eat. And then verse number seven, same thing happens. And then he goes on his journey. Here's what I love. God prepared Elijah to deal with this problem. You ever dealt with a problem where you emotionally, spiritually were not ready to deal with it? Did it get better or worse? We know the answer, it got worse, didn't it? You see, God knew, Elijah, you need to eat, you need to sleep. You're not ready to deal with your discouragement. And some of you right now, God is simply saying to you, when you get home from church, go take a nap. That's, that's easy. I'm not asking you to give money. I'm not asking you to go on a mission trip. I'm just saying, maybe you need to go take a nap. Part of it is because you know you stayed up all night watching Stranger Things season four and you need sleep, okay? That's on you, boo, but still, you just need to get some rest and get your heart right. But sometimes we need to just simply say, you know, I've been going too hard. I need to rest. And that's the most spiritual thing you can do. You need to rest and you need to eat some good food and then you need to get open back and get close to God. And that's what God does. And that's so good of our God. God knows what you need. And he knows you're going to deal with this, but you've got to be ready and prepared to deal with your problem. That works in marriage. Sometimes we want to dive right into the relationship issues, but have you prepared the person to deal with the problem? Oftentimes we're like, "Mm, man, we haven't fought in a long time. This is going to be fun. Can't wait. I know how some of you are. You like to fight. It's like a pastime. If life is dull and boring, you're like, let's argue. That's fun to do. Let's just fight. And then you have this feeling like, oh man, you know, it'll be the last time and it never is the last time. But here God is so good in how he helps him. Helps him deal with the problem. But then he also didn't realize something. Here he was and he's at Mount Sinai, which is a place where God showed up and visited Moses. Mount Sinai. This is a great place in scripture, a place where you can meet with God. He's there and he's still discouraged. Would you write this down if you're taking notes? Discouragement is not a location, but an emotion. You say, okay, all right, I get that. I know that. I don't think we do because many of us are like, I need to move to Tennessee. Then I'll be happy in Tennessee. I need to get out of the Bay Area. I think that's where my problem is. Or you'll do this. You'll think, oh man, it's the location. I need to get out of this relationship. I just need to find a divorce lawyer and I just need to get out of this because it's my location. But discouragement is an emotion, not a location. And here, Elijah, he's at Mount Sinai and he's still discouraged. And we can trick ourselves into thinking that if I go somewhere else, the problem won't go with me. But here's the thing. You take yourself everywhere you go. And if you were discouraged here in San Jose, California, you were going to be discouraged in Waco, Texas, where you're living and you want to work with Chip and Joanna Gaines. You're going to be just as discouraged. You say, oh man, if I just lived in Idaho, I would be happy. No, you wouldn't. And people make those decisions all the time that it's location, location, but it's not. It's an emotion. And you take that everywhere you go. And discouragement tricks you into mentality and emotionally dwelling in the place you want to leave. It just keeps you there. But here's what we do. You see, all this started because Jezebel didn't like who Elijah was. She wanted him to change or he had to go. But my friend, don't stop being all that God called you to be because someone doesn't see what God has said about you. God saw something in this prophet. God called this man to be a man of God. 
God used him and God is going to use him again in the future. But right now he is struggling. The real reason he's struggling is because Queen Jezebel doesn't see him for what God has said about him. And you are getting discouraged because your spouse, your friends, your coworker, or those around you don't see what God has said about you and you're getting upset. But this morning, don't, not, don't stop being all that God has called you to be because of that. Because guess what, my friend, every one of us, we only see the pieces of the puzzle. We don't see the big picture. You ever been putting together a puzzle and then you turn the picture upside down so you can't see it? You're trying to piece this puzzle together. That's much like life. You're trying to put your life together, but you need the picture. And understand, only God has a picture of what you're going to look like. And so you're taking one piece at a time and you're saying, God, I just have a few pieces and I'm just connecting the pieces and putting the picture together. Only God sees it. So don't stop being what God has called you to be because somebody else doesn't see your potential. Keep saying, I'm called to follow God and I will keep following God no matter what. Because God does see what he has said about me. But here was a person that he was listening to some wrong voices and it affected the way he was living. If you're gonna hear what God is saying, you have to block out what the enemy is suggesting. The enemy was making some wrong suggestions about him. And this morning, I think some of you may be feeling that same thing where the, the voice of the enemy is suggesting some things about you and your life and you need to say, God, that is not what you are calling me to. God, that is not what your word has said about me. God, I'm gonna listen to you. Think about David and his brothers. When he went to go fight Goliath just before he fought him in 1 Samuel 18, his brother Eliab said, hey, who are you? You're just a shepherd, a little shepherd and with a few sheep, just putting him down, putting him down. Who do you think you are? And the David, he realized, he's like, hey, I, I don't have any fight with you. I'm not trying to fight you. But we've got a giant out there, a giant of a problem that we need to deal with. Let's not fight each other. Let's fight him. But Satan's real good at getting us fighting each other, isn't he? Instead of fighting the real enemy. And so we've got to step back and say, Lord, I want to be focused on what you want. But then here in this passage, we see verse 15. Then the Lord said to him, go back the way you came and travel the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive there, anoint Haziel to be king of Aram, then anoint Jehu, grandson of Nimshi, to be king of Israel. He says, go back the same way you came. Sometimes it's hard to go back, isn't it? When we have all that past shame, where we left that place, we left those people, they watched us leave, they saw us tuck tail and run, they saw us fall in fear and not rise in faith. Why are we gonna go back there? And some of us just want God to fix all our problems so we never have to face them. But understand, my friend, God is not going to fix all your problems. He wants you to face your problems. Because you and I have this idea, and it's a false narrative in our mind, that this problem is the last problem. That our problems will never get bigger, they'll never get badder, and we're never gonna have to deal with it again. But the reality is, your problems keep growing like you keep growing or your problems keep repeating. You and I thought, man, junior high was tough. Now you graduated from junior high and got into high school and you're like, what was I thinking? Junior high was a cakewalk. Then you got into high school and you're like, man, high school is tough. And then you get into college and then college, you realize high school was easy. And then from college, you think college is tough. And then you start working at a, at a real job, real career. And you're like, wait a minute, college was easy. And then you say, man, dating, this is hard. And then you get married and you're like, what was I thinking? Dating was easy. Marriage is hard. And then from marriage, you have a couple of kids. And from a couple of kids, you're always looking back. You see the battles are getting bigger. 
And Elijah's life, he started, first of all, go prophesy to a king. And then once he prophesied, he just goes to a brook. And his biggest battle was he had to get his food from dirty birds. I mean, crows are dirty birds. And he's like, man, that's my worst problem is that my food is delivered by Uber Bird. Like that's where it's coming in. Like not Grubhub, but Uber Bird is dropping it off. These dirty birds dropping it off. And then his next problem was I've got to ask a widow for help. I got to humble myself and ask somebody who's got it worse than me for their help. His problems kept getting bigger. His battles kept getting bigger, but it prepared him for the ultimate battle. This battle's getting you ready for the next battle. And some of you, you're fighting this little battle and you're wondering why God won't ever give you more. God's like, hey, if you can't handle this fight, what makes you think you're gonna have that fight? You see, our faith always needs a good fight. That's the only way our faith grows. Your faith and my faith doesn't grow in its comfort zone. We need to be stretched. We need to be pushed. Our faith needs that. It grows. So stop waiting for God to fix what he told you to face. Go back and face it. You see, what you were running away from, God never told you to leave. God wanted you right where you are, right here, right now. I know it's hard. I talked to a lot of friends that have moved out. Recently, I saw a bunch in Fresno. I went there for a funeral and I saw some familiar friends and they had all moved out of state. And they were like, man, how's it going in San Jose? It's tough. Politics are tough. I was like, no, it's hard everywhere. I'm sure where you're at is hard. Everywhere's got its problems. But when you're called here, God gives you a special anointing to be able to accomplish the assignment. This is where I'm called to. I'm not going to run when I'm right where God wants me to be. And too often Christians run from being right where God wants them. And then when they run to that next place, they don't understand God's presence isn't there. His provision isn't always there. And so God is calling us to go back. And some of you this morning, God may be saying, hey, you need to get back to that spiritual place that you once were. That place where you were passionate on fire for God, go back there. Get back to that place where you heard from God. Get back to that place where God wanted you to work. But here's the best part of the whole message. It was when he went back, he anointed somebody. That person's name was Jehu, grandson of Nimshi, to be king of Israel. We ain't got time, and I wish we did, but I would take it to 2 Kings chapter, chapter number 9, because in 2 Kings chapter number 9, Jehu, this king, he goes to Jezreel. You say, what does he do in Jezreel? Well, there was a wicked queen. Her name is Jezebel in Jezreel, and he says, is there anybody that follows the Lord? And there was three eunuchs that says, we do. And he said, throw her down off the tower. They throw Jezebel down, and she dies. Here's what's amazing. Some of you aren't willing to face your problem and understand that God's got the solution to your problem when you will face it, when you'll go back. You see, if he hadn't gone back, he wouldn't have anointed Jehu, and Jehu took care of Jezebel. So thank God that he sends you back to some places because he's taking care of some of your problems. But remember at the beginning where I said, the enemy wants to destroy you? I love it because you know Elijah after he anointed and after he heard about what Jehu did, you know what he thought? He thought this about Jezebel. You should have destroyed me when you had the chance. You should have taken me out when you said you were. You see, she said, by this time tomorrow, you're a dead man. She never did it, did she? You see, she's the one that ended up dying, not Elijah. You see, God wants to take care of your problems. God wants to help you fight your battles. But you've got to stand up and say, Lord, I'm willing to face it. But how do we do that? You've got to leave the cave. 
You see, Elijah was in this cave, and he was seeing God work. And in that cave, he wasn't going to face his problems. He had to leave that cave. And some of you are in a spiritual cave. You're in the cave of bitterness. You're in the cave of anger. You're in this cave of just upset. You're mad. There's just things going on you're just holding on to. And God's like, hey, you got to come out of that cave. And it was when he came out of the cave, that's when he saw God. Not God in the wind. Not God in the earth. Not God in the fire. Even though their music was good, God wasn't there. That was a preacher joke. Earth, wind, and fire. They've been around a long time. But then where did he experience God? I said in a gentle whisper. Here's the man of Elijah. He's used to God just showing up in power, raising the dead, fire from heaven. And God's like, hey, Elijah, I think you got used to me working a certain way and you've idolized me only working in the big moments. And you've forgotten I'm just as real, just as powerful in the small moments. And sometimes you and I can get to the point where we're like, God, I don't even know if you're working anymore. Because I don't see it big. I just see these little things. But it's amazing when you see little things that are happening. Just these little miracles where God is working. When your kids before mealtime say, Daddy, can I pray this time? That's powerful. When you see your son who is away from God, watch you guys go out the door and say, Hey, can I go to church with you guys today? That's God working in a still small voice. When you see God break through your uh, spouse's hard heart and say, I'm sorry, I'm wrong, will you forgive me? That is God's still small voice and he's working right through you. You see, sometimes we want God to just, hey, God just call down fire from heaven and just everybody that's in that White House, just, you could just roast them all. And God's like, but how about I do something else? How about I take you where you're at and you love the people next to you, even though politically they're totally different than you, even though socioeconomically, even though uh, ideologically, they're just totally different. You just love them and you show them Jesus and that's how I'm gonna change. In a still small voice, I'm gonna do something through you. And too often, we just want God to show up in the big ways and we think, well, that's the last battle, never have to deal with that again. And God's like, no, I wanna show up in a still small voice. And in that moment, when God shows up in a still small voice, here is what Elijah realized. Because if I were to talk in a still small voice without this microphone, you wouldn't be able to hear me. But if I whispered and I got close to you and I dropped the mic, you would hear me. For God to speak in a gentle small voice means he's close. And isn't that the thing you want the most when you're going through discouraging times, to know God is right there. And that's when Elijah finally realized, I'm not alone. Yeah, I got to come out of this cave. And in that moment, the scripture tells us he does something. He takes off his prophet's robe and he wraps his face with it. You say, why did he do that? Because he realized something Moses realized. See, Moses was on the same mountain. He saw the glory of God and his face shone because of it. And in this moment, he realized that the glory of God and his presence could kill him. So he covers his face because he realizes who is there in that moment. He didn't realize it in the fire, the earthquake, or the wind. He realized God was there in that still small moment. And my friend, that's where you and I have to get to. And as immediately after he realized God was there, that's when he could go back. And that's where God's calling us to. Even out of all the discouragement, God is saying, let's go back. Because God has an Elisha for you to anoint. God has a job for you. God has an assignment for you. And it's too soon to just give up and let Satan destroy you, to distract you, to delay you, or to discourage you. You say, 
Satan, you had your chance. You should have taken me out. Because every time you come against me, I'm going to take 100 more people to heaven. I'm going I'm to I'm do whatever it takes to fight against you. And that's what the church needs to be. So if Satan's coming against you, it's because Satan only threatens those who are a threat to his kingdom. Amen? Let's stand with heads bowed and eyes closed. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just come into your presence. So grateful and thankful for all that you're doing. God, we want to hear from you. God, we need you. I'm going to invite the worship team back on the stage, prepare to worship together. Lord, discouragement is an equal opportunity offender. There's not one person here, no matter how nice their life is, no matter how perfect things are, no matter how much money or wealth, prestige, influence they have, discouragement still will come to all of them. And God, we all deal with it, and we need your help to overcome it. The enemy has a plan to destroy us, to delay us, to discourage us, and to uh, get us distracted. But God, I'm so thankful that we won't be destroyed. With heads bowed and eyes closed, maybe you say, Pastor, right now would you pray for me? I, I, I'm going through discouragement. I don't know what to do, but I need help. With heads bowed and eyes closed, is that you? Could I pray for you? Oh, I see that hand. I see that hand. Amen. God bless you. Anybody else? Oh, I see that hand and that hand. God bless you. Going through discouragement. Oh, thank you for your honesty. Thank you. You may put your hands down. I'm going to pray for you. Before I do, though, I, maybe there's somebody here. You don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior. And this morning, God is speaking to you to receive him as your Savior. And you say, yes, I want to say yes to Jesus. Is that you? You slip up your hand. I can pray for you. Anybody like that in this room? Say, I want to give my life to Jesus. Anybody like that? At any time after the service. Oh, amen. God bless you. I see that hand. Amen. God bless you. Amen. Anybody else? I'm going to pray a simple prayer and I'm going to give you an opportunity to invite Christ into your heart. And if you, it's not the words, but if you have the belief in your heart, just pray this prayer. I'll pray it out loud. You pray it silently. Dear God, I know Satan has tried to destroy me, but I thank you for Jesus who came to deliver me. Father, I've been distracted. And I want to come back to you. I repent of my sin. I want to receive you as my Savior. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. And if you prayed that prayer, then today is your spiritual birthday. And we and all of heaven celebrate with you. And it's a great day. And so let me pray for the others that said they were discouraged. Heavenly Father, you see the hands of those that were discouraged. I pray that you bless them. Father, would you send ministering angels to minister to them, even in this moment? May they walk out of here with a peace that passes all understanding. May they walk out with a renewed faith. May they walk out of here knowing that they are a child of the Most High God. May they know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are for them, that you are with them, and that you are working all things together for good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you remain standing as we sing just one verse? Thank you again for spending time with us today. And a special thanks to those who give generously to Southridge Church. It is because of you that this ministry is possible. And if you want to learn more about Southridge, you can follow us on social media at Southridge Now. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe or share it with a friend or even take a screenshot and share it on your social story. Make sure you tag Southridge Church and let it be a blessing to somebody else. Thank you again, and we'll catch you on the next one.